0: Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading, exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Mark Buell, Regional Vice President for North America at the Internet Society, where he oversees the organization's connectivity work in the US and Canada. Mark and I spoke a couple of weeks ago when Congress was still working on passing President Biden's infrastructure package, including $65 billion for broadband. With that legislation now officially signed into law on November 15th, here's my conversation with Mark about what is and is not in the broadband legislation and what other government agencies and local jurisdictions can do to fill in the blanks. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Nicole.
0: It's my pleasure. So to start off, uh, tell me a bit about the Internet Society and your role there.
1: So the Internet Society is an international nonprofit organization actually headquartered in uh, Reston, Virginia. And uh, we were founded in 1992 by the originators of the internet, the people who actually created uh, the code that became what we know as, as the internet today. And we really exist to achieve one mission that everyone everywhere should have access to a secure and, and, and safe internet. And in that uh, mission, or I guess it's more of a vision, is uh, there's two things. There's that the internet should be safe and secure, and there's that everyone should have access. So a lot of our work is actually on connecting the hardest communities in, in the world to connect. Uh, what makes them a challenge to connect varies by community. It could be geography, it could be policy, it could be uh, economic, but Challenging, nonetheless, Uh, I am the regional vice president for North America at the Internet Society. So I oversee our our connectivity work uh, in Canada and and the United States. Um, Generally speaking, On the international scale, when we we talk about the digital divide or or the connectivity gap, it's often framed as a a developing world versus developed world issue. But we know that in in both Canada and the United States, uh, there's a significant uh, connectivity gap that that persists. So a lot of our work is in the rural and remote areas and uh, economically disadvantaged uh, parts of, of cities across the country.
0: Yeah, hopefully, uh, the past, uh, year plus has disabused people of that notion that the United States and other, uh, developed areas, uh, don't also suffer from the digital divide problem. Um, it has certainly become, uh, relevant on, on the policy front, uh, as you and I are speaking, uh. Congress is hopefully maybe getting closer to passing President Biden's infrastructure bill, which contains $65 billion for broadband. Maybe by the time this runs, it'll be passed. I am not making any predictions, but we'll see. Um, so what's your overall take on uh, what is and is not in that bill as far as broadband is concerned and the impact that it'll have on the digital divide in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I think with regard to the infrastructure package, there are many of us both on the edge of our seats and and with <laughs> fingers crossed, uh, waiting to yeah. see what happens. Overall, I think the uh, infrastructure package is 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 pretty good. Uh, like most things in life, uh, some of it's very good and 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 some perhaps less good. But I, I don't think there are too many people who would argue that uh, a sixty five billion dollar commitment to uh, addressing the digital divide in the United States is not a significant one. I also think $65 billion can go a long way to closing that uh, connectivity gap if, if distributed uh, strategically. Um, some of the mechanics of the bill, I think, are good as well. I, th- I think that providing states the funding to distribute to underserved areas as opposed to the FCC is, mm-hmm. is the right step. The FCC has historically used reverse auctions to distribute funding, and uh, quite often we see that that money doesn't end up in, in the most underserved of, of areas. That is putting aside the 17 or so states that that currently have uh, roadblocks in place for, for municipal or, or community networks. But I think it's certainly true that states are are in the best position to know where the, where to target the money the best. And many have actually been preparing to do just that. We've seen uh, broadband mapping initiatives in, in Georgia, uh, one happening in Virginia and, and other States as, as well. So we're seeing States getting ready for the funding. And I think, uh, something good may come out of that. Um, uh, I also think it's good that, uh, I also think the requirement for ISPs to receive funding through the infrastructure package to provide speeds of 100 uh, down, 20 up is is a good step. It's a significant upgrade over uh, the FCC's currently definition of broadband of of 25.3. There are some less good things, though. Uh, There are no specific call-outs for municipal networks or or community networks, Uh, and those are certainly a critical model for areas of the country where there's no return on investment for traditional ISPs to to, to build uh, infrastructure. And on the the fence idea, uh, in terms of good or bad, uh, the bill does call on the FCC to put an end to digital redlining, Uh, which I think is a a crucial thing to do uh, and a very important idea. But it's giving the FCC two years to do it. and, And I don't think these communities can wait two years.
0: Right. So sticking with the your points about municipal networks for a second, uh, President Biden, when he first outlined what was going to be in the infrastructure package, had some stronger uh, intentions around, um, I think, the legislation basically overriding the the state bans. Uh, that's not what we ended up with. Um, what What do you think would have been ideal for us to end up with, with uh, as far as municipal and community networks go in that legislation? What would that have, have looked like? in a policy language uh, perspective.
1: Yeah, it, it's true. And, you know, for so many rural and remote parts of the country, the, the market-based approach that we've relied on really hasn't worked well for uh, for many communities. Um, at the Internet Society, we believe that that small local and, and regional ISPs or uh, cooperatives should be able to access federal funding as easily as as large national ones. Uh, It would have been really good to see a specific call out or funding uh, directed directed specifically to to municipal and and community networks. Um, You know, we know from experience that community driven connectivity solutions, like uh, municipal networks can be low cost alternatives to traditional ISPs, but can be Critical critical connectivity solutions for those areas where uh, ISPs simply don't don't operate. So we really would have liked to have seen funding designated specifically for uh, these community driven solutions. It's not there, but I hope in the implementation of the bill, uh, if it is passed, fingers crossed again, <sighs> that we'll see we'll see just that happen.
0: Yeah. Um, so just to talk a bit more about these networks, because, you know, there was a concerted effort from the cable lobby and, and their friends to soften that language around municipal networks. And really, to th- their, their preference would be just to, to disallow them everywhere. Um, can you talk to me about some municipal networks that you know of that are particularly successful and, and why? Um, just talk a little bit about what makes these networks work and why we should be fighting for more of them.
1: One of the reasons I think we should be fighting for more of them, and I'll I'll get to some of the ones that that I think are successful in a a moment, but, you know, we've been relying on the same model of funding access for decades now. Uh, The model of connect as many people as you can as quickly as you can for the least amount of money. That model (laughs) fails the hardest areas to connect, and those are the areas that that need access the most if that model worked, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Right. so I think it's very definitely time we start looking at at innovative models like community uh, networks or municipal networks to, to to bridge the digital divide you know we we see them work in in, in a lot of different situations I think uh it's the institute of local self reliance say that there's there's more than five hundred. Uh, community networks operating across across the country right now, and, you know it, they range in size uh, from NYC Mesh in New York City, which is a a very successful urban network bringing access to uh, to communities that that need it. To uh, at the Internet Society, we worked with uh, a small Native Hawaiian community in Hawaii on the island of Oahu called. Uh, Puohunua o Waimanalo in 2019 to build a network before they had a community network. uh, They had no access whatsoever. Even, even cell phone was, was spotty. Uh, By the end of 2019, they had their own network operating it successfully. Uh, They've actually expanded it in in 2020, but um, the timing there is, is key, right? Mm -hmm. This was the end of 2019 and we all know what happened in the, the first part of, of 2020, uh the kids who live in this community were able to continue to go to school people could book their vaccine appointments online you name it i I think we all know the the benefits that the internet offers so uh, there are so many different models of networks and they can work in so many different places uh i certainly would never argue that they are a replacement to the traditional ISP model because while I, I, I say that model has failed uh, a lot of communities, it's also been tremendously successful. I mean, mm-hmm. that model brought half of the world's population online, so it's it's clearly done something right. But in those areas where it simply doesn't work, we need to look at alternatives.
0: So is there anything that you think agencies like the FCC can do to pick up where the legislation has left off on the municipal network issue and, and the digital divide?
1: The one glaring gap I see in the legislation is a lack of commitment to, uh, to address broadband mapping in, in, in the U.S. The fact is good policy is, is built upon good information, and we don't have good information about who is and, and who isn't connected. Uh, the broadband mapping regime that is currently employed by the FCC is is woefully inadequate and and um, horrendously inaccurate. Uh, that tool should have been fixed years ago. It is mm-hmm. what guides who gets money to connect communities and and who doesn't. But now, with the prospect of of spending, you know, upwards of sixty five billion dollars to connect the unconnected, it's become much more urgent.
0: Right, but the FCC is pretty far off from having that map existing in real life, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> correct, and I think that's why you see states like Virginia and Georgia and others uh, right. picking up where the FCC is is currently failing, and right. and building their own maps. They they know they're getting money through this uh, this uh, infrastructure package, and you know I, I believe. Uh, that the states want to spend it in 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 the best way possible to really actually connect the people in their states that that aren't connected yet.
0: And hopefully, if the FCC actually gets it, its full membership confirmed before the end of the year, it can actually uh, move on that that mapping issue a bit more in 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 the upcoming year at least. <laughs>
1: absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much, Mark. I really enjoyed talking about all of this with you and I hope you'll come back and chat with me again sometime.
1: Great. Thank you, Nicole.
0: Thank you again, Mark, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.